The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'm going to get started right into the message tonight, so I want you to take your Bibles and open them to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 28. And this evening we're going to combine similar passages from the Old Testament and the New. And so when you find Exodus 28, I want you to hold on to that scripture and then also turn to the New Testament, to 1 Peter, chapter 1. And the subject that we're going to talk about tonight is holiness. And I've chosen this passage from the instructions of the building of the tabernacle, Uh, to show us how that God expects his people to be holy. Now, as you know from previous studies, the tabernacle is filled with all kinds of spiritual applications that have New Testament counterparts. The building and the furnishings of of the tabernacle, various aspects of it are symbols of the Christian faith and of the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ. And in this particular scripture, in Exodus 28... God gave Moses instructions concerning the priesthood. The high priest of Israel was the central figure in tabernacle worship. He was the one who had the responsibility of representing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. Now, I want you to notice in these scriptures that the chief priority for the high priest was reflected in the garments that he wore. There were Uh, special garments that he was to put on for the exercise of his office, and God gave particular instructions for each of those. Now, before we get into the text verses tonight, I want you to just look there in Exodus 28, verse number 4. I'll start right there, uh, just to read this little portion here about the priest's garments. It says, And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, and an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a miter, and a girdle, And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now, there are various articles of clothing there. Uh, There was a breastplate that was to be made. This breastplate had 12 stones on it, and in each of those stones was inscribed one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There was an ephod, which is an apron-like garment. There was a robe, and so on. And each of those things is symbolic. They do have special meanings to them. And all of it is really fascinating and interesting to study. But where I want to concentrate tonight is on one particular article of clothing, and that was the miter. And that was a golden plate that was fastened to the, to the hat or the turban that the high priest wore. Now, we read about this in the 36th verse. If you look there, it's described for us in 36 to 38. It says, And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the miter, upon the forefront of the miter it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now, in your Bible, 
I assume I haven't read all editions of the King James Version that are put out, but I assume that yours is just like mine, that in large letters, capital letters, is written these words, holiness to the Lord. And the prominence of those letters that we see in the Scripture, I think, accurately represents for us the importance of the holiness of the high priest, as I said a moment ago, who stood in the place of Jesus Christ. Now, in the message tonight, I want you to hold on to three thoughts. These three thoughts, priesthood, holiness, and Jesus Christ. And at the end, we're going to sum it up talking about those three particular things. So this is our theme. It's about holiness. And now we need to go into the New Testament to find the New Testament application for believers in Jesus Christ. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse number 13, Peter wrote... Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy." And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, the theme of both of those passages is holiness. A few years ago, there were some members of our church that decided that they would leave us over various issues. I had a discussion with these folks, and it was really hard to nail down what the real issue was. Uh, we went around several different things, discussing several different things. But I think that really what, what was at the bottom of the reason that they left us was because of their ideas about holiness. They thought that they were holy. And I think that they thought the rest of us really didn't understand this issue of holiness. Now, it, it's strange to me that these folks left us. Because as far as I know, they're, they're no longer members, well, they're not members of another church. And, and uh, I don't think they even attend church. And, and that just sort of shows you who had the real problem. But in that, in thinking about their ideas of holiness, I mean, I have to confess that, that we all have a very long way to go in our holiness. We have a long way to go to come into full compliance with with what the Word of God says about us being holy people. But this one thing I most certainly know, that we're not going to get there by ignoring the obvious commands of Scripture. Now, one of the things that we're going to learn tonight is that our holiness is tied to our obedience. And I think that command that we find in the book of Hebrews, which says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, that would have to be one of the most important commands that we have about obedience. Now, holy is a word that we find often in the Bible. It is one of the most common words. And yet, I also think that it's one of the least understood. We use the word holy in church, and we use it out of church sometimes. Uh, I remember when I was young, my grandmother and my grandfather might get excited about something, and they would say, holy cow! A few weeks ago, we were discussing cursing and cussing in the fundamentals class, and we were talking about the expressions that people use, which are many times actually just dumbed-down cursing. For instance, gosh darn it, 
That's just a clean up, cleaned up version of something I'm not going to repeat to you tonight. I, I'm not going to say that. There, there are others of these. There are things like gee whiz. That, that comes from Jesus Christ. And it might surprise you that this one, holy cow, is actually dumbed down cursing. That it comes from holy Christ. And I never actually realized that, so I've been a little bit more careful about some of the things that I say. Uh, when I was young, my parents would take a switch to me if I used slang words, and so I grew up never saying things like gosh and darn and things like that. And my grandmother that I mentioned just a moment ago, she was a stellar Christian. And, and uh, if she knew the origin of holy cow, I don't think she'd ever use that. If she heard my grandfather Jude use it, she'd hit him over the head with an iron skillet. I know that's what she would do. But in any case, this word holy is one that we use in many different contexts without really understanding how important that its usage is in Scripture. Holy is a great word, and it's a word that we really ought to love, but you can tell by the way that people twist it and use it in certain ways that they put a bad meaning to it. For instance, we might call someone a holy Joe, or we might say somebody is holier than thou, and what we're saying is not actually a compliment. And then sometimes we visualize holiness as being a description of the Pentecostal holiness groups, where women don't wear makeup, they don't cut their hair, they don't wear pants, um, and things like that. And they might be very sincere in those beliefs, but that's not what holiness is in the Bible. And when I look back on those people that I was talking about that left the church, I think that this may have been part of what they had in their minds. They were thinking along these lines that they put holiness as a picture or, or, or could see it in, in the outward appearance. And, and they used those kinds of things to determine whether a person was holy or not. And I would remind you of this, that the Bible tells us that God looks on our heart. And you can do a lot of things to clean up the outside and not actually be holy on the inside. Now, in the message tonight, what I want to do is explore holiness from two perspectives. Now, first of all, we're going to briefly examine God's holiness, and then we're going to discuss what God wants us to be or what it means to be holy. Now, first we look at, then, God's holiness is his principal characteristic. Holiness is the principal characteristic of God's nature. And for those of you that are keeping score and understand uh, much more about what we're talking about here, I'm actually speaking of the, the attributes of God. The attributes. Those are certain characteristics of God that make him what he is. And if he doesn't have those things, then he can't actually be God. And holiness is actually a culmination of all the attributes of God. And in each of those things that define God is what he is. God is always holy. Now, there are many words that are used to describe God's nature. Uh, the Bible says that God is light. It says that God is love, that God is merciful. There are names that are given to describe God, like God is Jehovah Jireh, which means that God is our provider. God is El Shaddai, that is, God is the Almighty One. And so there are many names that we find in Scripture that describe God, but the one that's used most often is this term, holiness. That's used more than any other in the Bible, that God is holy. Now, I often refer to the Scripture in Isaiah where Isaiah had his vision of God. In fact, I referred to that very same Scripture this morning. And do you know the outstanding characteristic of God that really stood out and caught Isaiah's attention? 
He couldn't help but notice this because there were special angels that were around the throne of God and they repeated this refrain. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that same vision is repeated in the book of Revelation where John saw into heaven and said, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. God is holy. The angels tell us that he's holy. The scriptures tell us over and over again that God is holy. And in fact, the whole nature of the universe, the way everything is designed, is to show us that God is the holy God. Now, you've heard that many times. You've heard it said in many ways. But do you really understand what the Word of God means when it says that God is holy? Well, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament is the word kodesh. It's a word that means to be set apart. In the New Testament, the counterpart in the Greek is the word hagios, which is the same root word for which we get sanctification. Same word as consecration. And what it basically means is to be separate, distinct, and to be different. We have a Bible that we read, and uh, we call it the Holy Bible. My Bible has that printed on the spine. Yours might also have it printed on the front. Bible is simply a word, it, it, it's the word biblios, and it simply means a book. But when you place that word holy in front of it, it tells us that this is a book that's different from any other book. That there is no book that exists anywhere that's like this book. It's set apart from all of the others. It is distinct. And for those of you that read and believe the Bible, you know this, that the Bible is unlike anything that you've ever read before. There is nothing like the Bible. In in Jerusalem, the temple was there and it was called the Holy Temple because that was the only building that was set apart for worship to God in the Old Testament. The worship of the one true God. And so when we say that God is holy, what we're saying about him is that he is totally unique. That there is no other. That he is separate. That he stands apart from all life in the universe. That he is the one and there is none like him. And this is the exact reason why we could never be a part of an interfaith meeting. There's no way that we could be a part of an interfaith meeting because we can't say that God is holy and then also say that it's okay to pray to Allah. Now the Bible teaches us that Jehovah is the only one who is holy. And I might also tell you that you need to remember that whenever you use God's name. You never want to combine God's name with anything that's frivolous. There is no other name like God because he is holy. Now, when we speak of the holiness of God, the word also carries with it the meaning of one who evokes veneration or awe. That God is frightening beyond belief. This is what the psalmist wrote. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. And this is what you do when you respect the holiness of God. You revere him. And if you revere him, you're never going to use his name in vain. God's commandments reflect the veneration of his holiness by making this command that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, Thinking about that commandment, sometimes I, I think it must be the lost commandment. 
because that is one that's most often overlooked. Now we'll look at the Ten Commandments and we'll read things like, Thou shalt not kill. And I doubt very seriously that any of you are going to go out and kill somebody. The Bible says you should not steal. So I don't expect that we're going to see your name in the paper that a member of our church robbed a bank. I don't think that's going to happen. All of us here pretty much understand, as being good Christians, that we're not to commit adultery with our neighbor's wife. I don't think that you're going to do that. Those are all on the list of God's commandments. But what about this one that says, that talks about God's name? I mean, here it is at the very top of the list of all the commands that Jesus said are the most important. I don't have time to go into all of this tonight, but you remember that Jesus basically split the Ten Commandments into two parts. The first part has to do with God. The second part has to do with relationship with our fellow man. And if we're to think about which of these commandments are actually the most important, then I think that we would look at the top half of that as Jesus separated that out and said that before you can get to the second part of the Decalogue that has to do with the right relationships that we have with each other, that we first have to go through those first commandments. We have to get those right or we'll never get what's right with our fellow man. So Jesus taught us this, but nonetheless, we don't take it very seriously. Many Christians don't think about God's holiness. They don't think about the weight of that commandment and really understand what's wrong with the flippant use of God's name. When you tack OMG onto the end of a text or a tweet, you're taking God's name in vain. And when I was growing up, we used the Baptist hymnal in church. And the very first hymn in the Baptist hymnal is holy, holy, holy. And I think that that is just an appropriate number for that song. Number one. Our worship, our singing, preaching, and praying, all of that is first of all to God who is holy and to God alone. And that's because he is separate, he is distinct, he is unique, he's set apart from all others. Now that's just a little bit about the holiness of God. This is a really big topic, but I hope it gives you a little bit better understanding of it, that everything that God is is measured in terms of holiness. When you speak of his justice, it is holy justice. When you talk about his mercy, it's holy mercy. And even when you talk about God's punishment of sin, it's holy punishment. Everything that God does is a reflection of his holiness. And so it's no small wonder that the high priest in Israel who represented Jesus Christ was to do all of his works in holiness. And so he had this miter that was put on his headband, or there was the headband for, for his turban, and it said, Holiness to the Lord. And that's the banner under which he operated. This was extremely important. It is a priority for him. Holiness to the Lord. What does the Bible say about our holiness? Go to First Peter chapter 1 again. In verse number 15, it says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And once again, you should know conversation there in the King James means all the manner of your life. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, one of the reasons that God saves us, or the chief reason, I guess we would say, is to have fellowship with him, to be acceptable with him. And so what else would he expect but that we would be holy? Now secondly, we're going to look tonight at our holiness. 
that our holiness is personal conformity to God's nature. Now, God's nature is to be holy. Our holiness is to be conformed to the nature of God. Now, that mitre that was inscribed with these words, holiness to the Lord, was a constant reminder of God's expectation. And here in the text of 1 Peter, Peter, Peter gives us some practical advice about how to reflect God's holiness in our lives. And so starting here in verse number 13, he gives five practical means that we achieve holiness in the area of our lives where holiness operates. Now he starts at the very beginning with our mind. That holiness concerns our mind. In verse number 13 he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. So holiness begins with an attitude. And gird up your loins, that means to prepare yourself for action. Now in Peter's day, in Bible times, the people wore these long flowing robes. And if they wanted to run, they wanted to get going really fast, they had to pull those robes up and they tucked them into a belt or a sash that held the robe in place. Now what Peter is saying here, if we put that into a modern vernacular, he would be saying to us, roll up your sleeves and prepare in your mind to be holy. Now, the mind is the place of your spiritual consciousness. The mind is the place of decision where thought processes determine what you will do. Now, here Peter is speaking about a relationship with the Lord and that we have to be fully persuaded in our minds that what we're going to do is to gear our activities towards the promotion of God's will and of God's gospel. That our activities, the activities of a Christian, are to be the activities of God's kingdom. And the way you start with that is to put all of your hindrances out of your mind that cause you to stray away from God's holiness. David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And what he meant by that is that I'm going to struggle to keep my mind clear by avoiding all of these things that turn my thoughts away from holiness. Paul gave us a method in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where he also speaks of what we put into our minds, where he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And that's what we have to do. We have to push out all the other things that are there and gear our minds towards Christ. And goodness knows if you're a Christian, you understand how much clutter there is out there in the world that fills your mind. We have all these worldly influences. There's TV and radio and books and movies and billboards and even corrupt co-workers that we have to work with every day. On all sides of us, there are these mental attacks against our holiness. Now, some would look at that and they'd say, oh, you ha I mean, I have to put all these things aside. I have to get rid of all these vices that I have, the things that I really like to do. If I do that, then I can't possibly be happy. This is the way that I live my life. I can't be happy if I get rid of all those things. A.W. Tozier wrote, the emphasis of the New Testament is not upon happiness, but holiness. How confused are people about that? The emphasis of the New Testament is not upon happiness, but holiness. God is more concerned with the state of people's hearts than with the state of their feelings. Go to God and tell him that your desire to be holy at any cost. And then ask him to make you holy, whether you're happy or not. 
Be assured that in the end you will be as happy as you are holy. But for the time being, let your whole ambition be to serve God and be Christ-like. So holiness starts with a decision in your mind. You have to have the desire of holiness and decide that you're going to pursue it. And if you're truly a born-again Christian, this is what you'll do. This is your aspiration because a Christian has been made partaker of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And so if you are a partaker in his divine nature, it can't lead you anywhere but a desire to be holy. Now secondly, holiness also involves our will. The next part of verse 13 says, Be sober. Now, we don't want to be confused by changes in meaning of words that we have in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, it's still, this word sober still retains some of the meaning today that it had in those times. But most of the time, when we think of this word sober, we think about don't get drunk. Talking about drunkenness. And certainly that would be good advice. We ought not to get drunk. But the word here is not really talking about that, even though that is a part of it. He's speaking here about exercising self-control. That we're not to let temptations overcome us. We're not to let passions control us. Now, the evil nature, the passions that arise out of our flesh, out of the old man, those things are to be crucified with Christ. Now, the will is the part of you that controls you. Now, what we've studied and understand by reading Scripture is that the will of an unregenerate person is always bent towards sin. It's always bent away from God, and man has no possibility of being able to escape the corruption of his will. And the blessing of regeneration is this, is that God changes our natural bent, that he, he opens up the will to a godly perspective by, first of all, bringing us to repentance and faith. And then when we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, it becomes possible for us to act differently from the will of the sinful nature and act according to the new nature that's been implanted in us by Jesus Christ. Now, as you well know, there are many people, lots of Christian people, that are very, very confused about a man's will. What do we actually have the will to do? And people will simply boil that, boil that down. You have the will to choose. You have the will to choose any way that you want to go. The Bible teaches us that the way that every person wants to go is against Christ. His will is bent away from God. And so it's not until we have regeneration, until God has spoken to us by the Holy Spirit, that he implants within us the ability to resist the human nature that's in it and live according to the divine nature of God. Now, simply put then, when you become a Christian, you are enabled to escape the bondage of sin. You don't have an excuse for it any longer. You, you, you don't have to live in the corruption of sin. Now you can live according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But here's the rub, if you want to put it that way, and that is the sinful nature is still there. And it's not going to be gone until we receive our glorified bodies. And so every day, we'll have this constant struggle with sin. Even the great apostle Paul had his struggles with sin. And he vividly explains that in the book of Romans chapter 7. And he explained it this way. He said, there's a war going on inside of me. This is a war that's happening. He said, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. So I'll promise you this, that... If Paul had a struggle with this, you're going to have one too. So how do you fight that? Paul addressed that also in Galatians chapter 5 
where he said, we must crucify the flesh which is with its affections and lust. So we're not to live according to the passions of our flesh. We're to control those. And that's not easy. And if you think that you can expose yourself to everything that's coming and going and you're not going to be affected, you're sadly mistaken. You have to go back to what Paul says about the mind in Philippians 4.8 that you have to learn how to supplant those evil thoughts that you have for things that are good. And so you constantly spend your time filling your minds with the right kinds of things. Now, there's some good news in this, and that is, of course, always good news here, but when you conquer all these besetting sins that you're always struggling with, then God gives you the strength to fight the next one. And as you keep defeating sin and Satan, God increases your strength. And if you want to know what that actually comes down to in the very end, the increasing of a Christian's strength, it's actually his growth in holiness. It's an increase in his holiness. Now thirdly, the apostle here tells us that holiness also involves our hope. He says, our hope and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the wonderful part of this is that holiness also includes our future. That based upon God's grace, you have a future that can be lived in holiness. Literally translated, the last part of that verse would read this way, until the end of your life have perfect confidence in the grace of Christ. Hope is described as positive expectation. And the source of this hope, as Peter puts it here, is the second coming of Christ. Paul says in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I've told you several times before that one of my prayers each morning is that Christ would come. I pray that I would be delivered from the evil of this present world. I pray that I won't be encumbered with sin any longer. I mean, folks, this, this is a fight that I don't want to fight forever. I, I hope that you feel the same way about that. I, I don't want to struggle with sin forever, with this, these passions that you have and the battle that we have with the flesh. And I know that I'm never going to be complete in Christ's holiness until the robe of flesh is dropped and I receive a glorified body. Paul describes that as the incorruptible putting, or the corruptible putting on the incorruptible. Now when Paul wrote about that, he talked about how that the sting of death is sin, the corruptible must put on incorruption, and he says that death is swallowed up in victory. And the conclusion of all that is that sin is forever defeated. And so when I pray like this, when I pray for Christ to come, do you know what the sum total of that is? It's holiness. And that is to be like Christ, to be sinless like the Holy God. Holiness to the Lord and only and always holiness to the Lord. So that's a future expectation. It's a positive expectation. And I know that this is going to happen when Christ comes. What I have to do until then is to keep fighting, keep up the struggle, and wait for that time that Christ actually does come. Now, here, here is the difference in a person who's truly a Christian. That is, you can't be happy in sin. You, you can't be happy not living in holiness. I mean, you can just mark this down. If you're not miserable being conformed to the world, then you can't possibly be a Christian. When I was interviewing one of the young people about faith and baptism, 
uh, this young man was struggling a bit with assurance. And so I asked him, I said, have you ever felt miserable and uncomfortable when you do wrong? And then I said, do you know that the Lord is the one who's behind that? That the Lord is the one who makes you feel that way? And we were talking about chastisement, and, and he said, yes. He said, I, I felt that way. And I said, do you ever feel like you just have to make that right? And he said, yes. And I can tell you, friends, that is the mark of a Christian. Christians are miserable in sin. There isn't any such thing as a carnal Christian. Now, Christians can live in carnality sometime and do some carnal things, but they can't stay that way. They... they the Christian life is not characterized by carnality, and that's because we have been recreated to be holy. So if you're happy in sin, you're not holy, and you're not really a Christian. Now, a fourth thing that we can look at is that holiness also involves our conduct. And if I could just return to this for a moment, uh, I, I do find it kind of interesting that when I interview children about salvation, that the simplicity of the gospel is there and you can see that like light in a child's eyes. When a child believes, you know what the first thing he can't wait to do? He can't wait to be baptized. I mean, that seems to be, with all these young people, that, that thing just gets stuck in their mind. They want to be baptized. That's one of the most important things that they do. And they understand this, that that is, in their own way of understanding at least, that this is holiness, that this is what's been commanded. That's what Jesus expects from me. Now, he may not understand, uh, or, or the young lady or young man may not understand all these issues that I'm talking about holiness tonight, but there is a sense there. He doesn't know the terms, but he knows that God expects something. And that's why a, a child's faith is such a joy to behold. You don't all, all the time run into the issues that you do with adults, all their objections that they raise, the things that you say, this is what you ought to do. No, a child comes in a, in, in a childlike faith, and he's ready. He's ready to surrender. Whatever it is, he may not understand it all, but he's willing to accept that. I'll do what God has told me to do. Now, verse number 14 is about conduct. It says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. And really, folks, that right there, that's the most difficult part. Holiness involves acting differently from those that are not followers of Jesus Christ. When you look around... You're very much aware that what people want is they want to fit in. Everywhere that you go, people want to fit in. And usually, if a person is different from everybody else, they stick out like a sore thumb. Now, having said that, it might surprise you what I'll say next, because this thing has become so twisted among many Baptists that they don't really understand it. That holiness does not involve the way that you wear your hair. And holiness is not a particular style of clothing that you wear. And I think there are two things that have caused people to be, those two things have, have caused people to be judgmental. And folks think that it's possible to tell a person's heart by their outward appearance. And so that leads them to conclude that if you don't live by the standard that we have established, then you can't possibly be holy. And what that does, it makes people mean, it makes them uncompassionate, and finally it causes them to wrap up their whole Christianity in the outward appearance. And that becomes so central to their theology, that's all they ever think about. And while they're trying to judge holiness in other people, they become unholy or completely unholy in themselves in their own conduct. Well, those things are important. Your dress... 
That's important. Uh, what you look like is certainly important. I don't mean to belittle any of that, but we do need to understand that holiness goes much deeper than that. Holiness is a radical, different lifestyle. You're different from others. You're different, but that difference is a good difference. Being made different or being holy makes you different, but it doesn't make you do crazy things. I mean, to be holy, you don't have to shave your head. And you don't have to pull a cross up and down the street. You don't have to take a vow of celibacy or one of poverty or silence. You don't have to go move into a monastery somewhere. I know what being holy means is to, is to live a God-filled life of kindness and gentleness and compassion so that the life that you live actually becomes winsome to others. That people can actually like to be around you because you're a reflection of God's holiness. Now, if you think about the life of Jesus for just a moment, who was it that liked Jesus? It was the common people. Jesus moved in and out among sinners, and the Bible says the common people heard him gladly. You know the people who didn't like Jesus? The religious people. The ones that were so concerned about clothes and formality and foods that you ate or didn't eat and they thought that if you washed your hands, that was a symbol of your inward holiness. And they became so worried about all those things that they had no love and compassion for anyone but self. What they never realize is there are a lot of hurting people. There are people that hurt in here. There are people that hurt out there. And if you don't care about those people as Jesus cared about them, then you aren't holy no matter what you say or matter what you wear. So we have, we have some people, of course in the church that have to be helped. They have to be led along with, in this. They, they need to be taught. We need to be patient with them. We need to guide them and show them what to do. And we do that in a loving Christian manner, not beating them over the head with things. Now the prophet Micah wrote, He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And that phrase in that, in that verse that says to love mercy, that means faithful love in action to your fellow man. And isn't that a reflection of God himself? When we're taking on God's nature, isn't that a reflection of him? Be different, but be different in such a way that you're not obnoxious to your fellow man. Watch your conduct. Your conduct has to change. But instead of your one desire always being to please self, you now have this new attitude that what you want to do is to please God and help others. So we have to reflect God's holiness in this. We have to be dare. We have to dare to be different in our conduct. So different that we are Christ-like. And when you have that on the inside, you're not going to be judgmental. And this is what you'll do. If people aren't like you and they need some changes in their lives, and you're not exactly the standard if you didn't realize that, but if there are changes that need to be made, then let's help people. Let's guide them through those changes, direct them, and teach them. The outward conformity, if you think that's what they need, that's going to come, but only when the inside has been taken care of and that's solved. If it comes any other way, then it's no good anyway. Now, lastly is this, that holiness involves our fear of God. Holiness involves fear of God. If you look at verse number 17... And if he call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, what, what, what's the motivation for holiness? Well, Peter takes us to that 
definition of holiness that I gave you early that involves veneration, that involves awe of God, that God is frightening beyond belief. So we live serving God with a reverential fear. That's not a fear of being slapped down if you do something wrong. It's not a fear that your salvation is going to be taken away and you'll be sent to hell. That's not what we're worried about. I mean, all of us know this, that every single day of our lives, we, we fall short of what God expects us to be. Well, we, we, can't, we just can't live up to the standard. It's not an excuse, but we still have that sinful flesh and we're going to fall short. And we would be miserable if we were living all of our Christian lives with a fear of punishment. That's not the kind of fear that Peter's speaking of. Now, this means that we live on this earth knowing that we are strangers and pilgrims, that we're not of this world, and that God has put us here uh, to, to please him by respecting what he's written in his word. We know this, that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We understand that Christ has bought us out of the slave market of sin, that our outlook towards sin has changed, that it took Christ's own blood to cleanse us from our sins, and we respect that great sacrifice that he's made so much that we're not going to tempt God. We're not going to approach God in sinfulness and try to see what we can do to provoke him. We're not going to test God in that way. But instead, we honor him without serving him because of a fear of chastisement. And the reason that we do is because in this new nature that's been implanted within us, in this new mind that Christ has given us, we have a different attitude towards sin. That's no longer our desire. We, we don't want that anymore. We, we've changed in that way, and now God has given a holy disposition to the mind. And so we recognize the power of God, that God has the right to command. Now, interestingly, there, there was a study that just came out recently, a very, very good study, one I think you can have confidence in, that was put out by Lifeway and also Ligonier Ministries, and they, they surveyed different theological issues. And one of them was that in America today, that 48% of the people, I believe, I think it was 48%, 48% of the people believe that the Bible has no authority over the way that they live their lives. Or in other words, God does not have the right to command. You can't live like that as a Christian. God has every right to command. And when you think of him, he's not the man who lives upstairs. He is the almighty God. And we are to approach him in holiness. Holiness is inseparably united to God. And along with that, inseparably, what is inseparably united is the obedience that we give him. So we read the scriptures and we see the commands that are in God's word. And as Micah says, we walk humbly with our God. Now what we must be is holy men and women of God. And that's because one day we're going to be judged by him. We're not going to be judged for our sins because that's already taken by Christ at the cross. But what we will be judged for is how that we have improved these Christian graces in our lives. And that really is the aspiration. It's the work towards holiness. It's the sanctification. So you might ask yourself, this question, a am I a holy Christian? When people observe your life, is the holiness so obvious that it's like wearing a golden mitre on your head that says holiness to the Lord? Now, I told you to remember three things, priesthood, holiness, and Jesus Christ. 
Now, let's think as we close here. What does that mean to you? Peter has more insight in the second chapter. If you'll look there, 1 Peter 2, verse number 9. He says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this puts a tremendous amount of responsibility on you. Do you understand what Peter is saying? He's saying that you are a priest. Uh, you, you may not wear a frock, and you might not put your collar on backwards or anything like that, but nonetheless, you are a priest. You represent Jesus Christ. And what is it that God requires a priest? Is anybody going to miss that question? It is? Holiness, absolutely. That's the main requirement, the priority of holiness. Now, like the high priest in the Old Testament, that holiness ought to be as obvious as the mitre on the head. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a certain bloodline that qualified a person to be a priest. The priests were Levites that were descendants of Aaron. And you also have a bloodline. You're, you're descended from Jesus Christ. You're a son of God. Isn't that what the Word of God says? You trust in Christ, you become a son of God. And so that means that priesthood is not optional for you. You don't get to pick and choose this. You can't opt out of the responsibility of priesthood. And if you don't fulfill that role, you're not, again, you're not actually a Christian. Now, you might fail. You might stumble along the way. There are a lot of things you've got to work on to get right. But you can be assured of this, that you're not doing that by yourself. The work is not all your own. You have the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is there to pick you up to help you progress in sanctification. To become holy as God is holy. So you, you really can't opt out of that. You have, the, you have all the help that you ever need to become holy. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So we see, according to Peter, that holiness is an attitude of the mind. It's an act of the will. It's a positive hope. It's righteousness in our conduct, and it's reverential fear of God. Now, one last point that I don't have time to develop, and I'm not going to develop. You just need to be aware of it. And that is, there is a word in Scripture that is the opposite of holiness. And that word is abominable. It means loathsome. It means detestable. And I hope that that's not you. I hope you're holy, not abominable. This is what Hebrews says, follow peace with all men and holiness, listen, without which no man shall see the Lord. It's never optional for a Christian. God says, be holy as I am holy. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now and uh, we pray, Lord, that the words of your scriptures and the words that have been spoken in explanation would sink down cause us to understand how critical the issue of holiness is. Lord, I pray that it might be something on our minds all the time. And I know that as we think about this and we're concerned about it, that it will lead us away from the, the, the vices in our life, the things that make us bad testimonies, the things that bring reproach upon your name and reproach upon your church. Lord, I pray that none of us wants to live that way. May we also pray that your kingdom would soon come, that we would see you 
because we know that's when all issues are resolved and we no longer have to worry about fighting the fight and struggling against the sin in our lives. But we'll be just like you and then we will be holy. In the meantime, help us to struggle towards that. Help us to work on it all the time. Never give up the fight to be what you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.